That was good singing. And again, I want to welcome this evening the Reverend Greer. Uh, we've certainly been blessed as the Lord's servant has ministered the word. And we keep the preliminaries of the meeting to a minimum to allow maximum time for the preaching of the word. Our focus has been upon that ministry and the Lord has blessed the word to our hearts. And we trust that as the Reverend Greer comes tonight, that he know the help of the Lord in the preaching of the word. Amen. Well, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Kenny, for your words of welcome. I have improved a little bit from last night, so um, that's good. Thank you for your, your prayers. Uh, that whatever it was hit me yesterday, and uh, thankfully I was able to get through last night, and we trust the Lord will be near to us tonight again as we come around the Word. So we're going to turn together. I want to read two verses in Ezra chapter 5, and then we're turning to Zechariah chapter 4, and we will stay focused there in that chapter, Zechariah chapter 4. So Ezra 5, verses 1 and 2, and then turning to Zechariah 4 to read from that chapter. So let us hear the Word of God, and we trust the Lord will bless it to our hearts. Then the prophets Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Ido prophesied unto the Jews that were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, even unto them. Then rose up Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshur, the son of Josadak, and began to build the house of God, which is at Jerusalem. And with them were the prophets of God, helping them. Then turning to Zechariah 4, and reading from verse 1. And the angel that talked with me came again and waked me as a man that is wakened out of his sleep, and said unto me, what seest thou? And I said, I have looked, and behold, a candlestick all of gold, with a bowl upon the top of it, and as seven lamps thereon, and seven pipes to the seven lamps which are upon the top thereof, and two olive trees by it, one upon the right side of the bowl, and the other upon the left side thereof. So I answered and spake to the angel that talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel that talked with me answered and said unto me, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Who art thou, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel thou shalt become a plain, and he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, Grace, grace unto it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also finish it, and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts has sent me unto you. For who hath despised the day of small things? For they shall rejoice, and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel with those seven. They are the eyes of the Lord. 
which run to and fro through the whole earth. Amen. And we know that God will bless the reading of his own word for his own glory. So again, we'll have a word of prayer. Let's just bow, please, at this point, and let's seek the face of the Lord. Our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for prayer already offered in the opening of this meeting, and even in times past, we thank Thee for the gathering of Thy people here to spend those seasons of prayer and preparation for this week of meetings. Lord, we bless Thee that we may come to the one who has urged us to pray, who has given to us even that invitation to draw near. We thank Thee that we come through the merit and the value of our Savior's person and work, and we may approach Thy throne to obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Lord, we hand the meeting over to Thee now. We confess that we have not been this way before. We will never be at this moment again. Lord, we are aware of this. The moment is precious. We need thy help. We need the power of God to come down over our souls, over our entire beings as we wait at thy feet and we consider thy word. And so, Lord, come and give help and meet with us, we pray. Touch every heart in this assembly, in this room, and bless those online. And may everything redound to thy glory and to thine everlasting praise, for we ask us all for Christ's sake and for his eternal glory. Amen and amen. Now in Ezra 5, verses 1 and 2, which I read a few moments ago, two of the minor prophets are introduced to us. They come into view. Their names are Haggai and Zechariah. They appear very suddenly, but actually very naturally in the book of Ezra for the simple reason that they belong to the same time frame that's in view in that book and, of course, also in Nehemiah. These two men served God after the Babylonian exile had come to an end. They ministered to the captives who returned from Babylon. The two men, uh, these two prophets, uh, Haggai and Zechariah were contemporaries themselves as well as being contemporaries with men like Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest. They were men who played a vital role in that era uh, when the work of God was going forward. They brought messages from God to stir up his people, to pursue the work that was set before them. And those messages, in essence at least, are recorded for us in the writings of these two prophets. The books that bear their names record for us something of what they would have preached in those days as they ministered to the Lord's people. Now Haggai's writing falls into four parts. If you had time to look at it tonight, you would find that he has four sermons there. I mentioned this the other night. Four sermons, as it were, consecutively recorded according to the dates when they were delivered in the two chapters of his prophecy. His preaching resulted in the resumption of the rebuilding of the temple. So, of course, did the preaching of Zechariah. Within three weeks after uh, Haggai delivered his first message 
the work resumed and proceeded quickly. And of course, that was to the annoyance and to the vexation of the people of the land. And so they then began to renew their opposition. We find all of this in Ezra. They used the same tactic. They sent a letter to the Persian emperor, Darius, to persuade him to issue a fresh decree to stop the work of God. However, while he did issue a fresh decree, it was not to stop the work, but rather it resulted in the building of the temple being completed. And so God overruled, as we saw the other night, the hand of the king, or the heart of the king was in the hand of the Lord, and therefore God turned that man's heart in the very direction which he wanted it turned, and he gave the command to see to the rebuilding of the temple and to bring it to completion. Now, the completion of the rebuilding of God's house was remarkable. It was nothing short of miraculous. It should engage our deep interest. Study reveals that the prophet Zechariah's ministry was also greatly used, as was the ministry of Haggai. As we compare the Scriptures, we find that Zechariah's ministry commenced a month before Haggai's ministry, uh, uh, before Haggai's final message, I should say. However, when Haggai's ministry finished, Zechariah continued right on through as far as dates in the book are concerned to the sixth year of the reign of Darius. And that was the year in which the rebuilding of the temple was actually completed. And therefore, Zechariah's ministry figured very, very prominently in those years regarding the consummation of the building of the house of God. The passage I've read with you this evening in Zechariah 4 bears out the impact of this prophet's preaching ministry with regard to the completion of the reconstruction of the house of God. Verse 9 makes that point clear because in verse number 9 you'll find that there is a reference made to the house of God being completed and finished. And then you'll also find in verse 6, which is really my text tonight here in Zechariah, ties in with Ezra, ties in with the whole story there. But you'll find in verse number 6 there was a word delivered to Zerubbabel very, very personally. It says there in Zechariah 4, 6, Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. You see, Zerubbabel was the chief leader in the return and in the rebuilding of the temple. Therefore, through Zechariah, a message was brought to Zerubbabel to encourage him personally, to encourage the man of God in his labor for the Lord. The theme of this message that is really encapsulated in verse number 6 was one that runs through the, uh, the Word of God in general. It's one that's found throughout the Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, namely that God's work is always done, always carried forward, always brought to completion through the ministry of the Holy Spirit of God. That's at the heart of the message that Zechariah delivered to Zerubbabel. 
God declared that the rebuilding of the temple was not only going to continue, but it was going to be brought to completion. It would not fail, accounting for the wonderful progress that we find in Ezra chapters 5 and 6. And it wouldn't fail because of what is said here, not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. This is a word in season for Zerubbabel in his day, but it is a word in season for Christ's church perennially. There's never a time that these words are not true. Of course, that's true of all Scripture, but taking what we're seeing in these meetings on the theme of of the highlights of revival in Ezra, we must look at Zechariah 4 because it, it brings, in many ways, to a peak all that was going on, all that was taking place, all that was happening in those wonderful days, and all happening through the agency of the Spirit of the living God. That is the core of this message here in verse number 4. I want to look at it tonight with you. I trust and pray that God will bring His Word with freshness to all of your hearts, that we will take these words to ourselves consciously and very personally and prayerfully, because, my dear friend, as I say, these words are perennially true and applicable to the work of God, no matter what the day, what the age, what the circumstances. It's always true that God's work is not done by might nor by power, but by my Spirit. And may the Lord burn those words into our hearts tonight. Therefore, we're going to look at that theme of the agency of the Holy Spirit as we consider these words. On a threefold basis, we will look at the words. Number one, it is a singular agency. This verse emphasizes that the Holy Spirit is the sole agent through whom the work of God is accomplished. The text underlines that in a certain sense the work of God is never accomplished by mere human agency but by the Spirit of God alone. It is the vital and the essential work that needs to be accomplished in the Lord's entire spiritual cause and kingdom, the work of God, and it must be brought about, it must be wrought by what we call the singular agency of the Spirit of God. Now, underlined in this, in this text is the Spirit's role within the Godhead. You need to start there. You need to think about who the Holy Spirit is. You need to think of the place that He occupies within the trinity of divine persons. Notice how the words are written, not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit saith the Lord or Jehovah of hosts. Now in that pronoun, my, there's an emphasis that among the persons of the Trinity, the Spirit's role is to be the singular agent of Jehovah and of the entire Godhead. There are many, many verses in Scripture that teach the doctrine of the Trinity. It's a fundamental doctrine. It is actually at the very heart of the entire gospel is at the heart of the entire revelation of God that there are three divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that each one is God. 
that each one possesses, that is, the, the, the whole divine essence of God. And yet they are distinct persons. And each one has a certain role to play in the redemption of men and in the whole uh, work of God in this world. And so, if we think of John 15, verse 26, we have a great statement from the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ. He uses there the name, the Comforter. You know that name, a lovely name given to the Holy Spirit. It refers to the consoling ministry of the Spirit, the one who comes alongside to help. But here's what the verse says, John 15, 26 when the Comforter is come, that did not mean that the Holy Spirit had never come before, by the way, just say that in passing, but rather the Lord is speaking about a fresh effusion of the Spirit, which of course happened at Pentecost and has happened ever since. But he says, when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. And in that verse, we find that one divine person is sent by the other two divine persons. Christ sends the Spirit, and the Father sends the Spirit. So notice that. There you have something of a, an insight into the Spirit's role within the Godhead. He is sent forth by both the Father and the Son to execute His ministry in this world. It's in the realm of time and space that the Holy Spirit actually operates, sent forth by uh, the Father and the Son. And as we think about the work of the Holy Ghost, we think about the divine work of God uh, to sum it up that way, in this world, we find that the Spirit of God is engaged at every, in every aspect of that divine work. Take, for example, creation. One of the greatest verses that sum up creation is Psalm 33 and verse number 6. And that verse says, By the word of Jehovah, by the word of Jehovah, were the heavens made then it says, and all the host of them by the breath or the spirit of his mouth. My friend, there's creation summed up in one very, very succinct statement, one powerful statement. By the word of the Lord, that's Christ. And the Lord is Jehovah, that's the Father. Where the heavens made and it goes on to say, and all the host of them by the breath the spirit of his mouth. If I tell you tonight, we go to Genesis 1. God said, God said, let there be light. God said, and on and on it goes right down through that chapter. So there was the word coming from God. There are two persons. And then there is the moving of the Spirit upon the face of the deep, upon the darkness that covered the face of the waters, and so on. And, and so the Holy Spirit is the agent of the Godhead in creation. He's the agent of the Godhead in providence. The three great works of God are creation and providence and also redemption. 
So we've seen him in creation. What about providence? Psalm 104, verse number 30. Thou sendest forth thy spirit, they are created, and thou renewest the face of the earth. Men and women, the Holy Ghost was sent forth, yes, in creation, but he's also sent forth in the renewing of the face of the earth. The Holy Ghost is providentially at work in his mighty power, his omnipotent power, upholding creation, renewing creation, sustaining creation. It's the Spirit of God who does that. And then, of course, redemption. That is God's greatest work. Because redemption is His work of grace, His work of salvation. In the hearts of men and women, poor guilty sinners like you or me, And it's the Holy Spirit who comes in the whole context of redemption to apply redemption's blessings to sinners. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 sums that up. It says, But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation, And now we're taken away back into eternity, into the covenant of redemption, the great decree of God to save sinners, to save a a particular people throughout the course of time. But it goes on to say this at the end of the verse, through sanctification of the Spirit. And the word sanctification is used there in a very broad sense. In 2 Thessalonians 2.13, I say in a broad sense because it's used there to to actually encapsulate the whole work of the application of redemption to a sinner's heart. Now, that's a study all on its own, but you find there language that indicates that the Holy Spirit is the one who applies redemption to the hearts, the lives, bringing home to them of sinners bring home to them all the benefits that Christ has won, all the blessings of covenant grace, applying to us regeneration, our justification, our adoption, our redemption, everything that we enjoy, all that is given by God unto undeserving sinners who deserve the very opposite, the wrath of God forever. It's the Holy Ghost who applies that to us. And that is why you find the Spirit mentioned here in second or in Zechariah chapter 4 because the rebuilding of the temple, as we saw last night, has to do with the whole uh, presentation of God's great message of redemption. We saw that. We saw from the, the word last night that the, the, the temple, or maybe it was the night before, the temple signifies the one mediator and the one atoning sacrifice. And we've been focusing on these things as we've looked at the rebuilding of the temple. The temple was a message in itself. Every piece of furniture, every sacrifice, every ceremony had something to say about Christ and redemption. And it's all brought about by the Spirit of God in terms of the message that was going forth as the temple was being rebuilt. And therefore, we find that this is true. The Spirit's agency is a singular agency. 
It is his work to do all these things that have been mentioned to you, and especially this whole matter of the building of the church of Christ that is symbolized by the rebuilding of the temple. Now, that is not to say that the Lord does not employ human agency or instrumentality. We know that he does. We know that the Holy Spirit took men in the giving of divine revelation. Brethren and sisters, the book you have sitting on your knee, holding your hands, how did you get it? Well, you bought it in the shop, I understand that. And I'm not being funny here. But where did it originally come from? It came as holy men of God spake, as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. It came, according to 2 Timothy 3.16, as the God-breathed word was delivered by the Spirit of God into the minds of of the writers of Scripture, that's what inspiration is. It wasn't that men sat down and said, I think this is what God means or what God would like me to say. No, my friend, there are modern translations that are actually produced on that basis, the idea that we can enter into the thoughts of Paul or into the thoughts of Matthew, and then we decide what they were really getting at, and then we put it down. That is absolute That is absolute heresy. That's not how the Word of God came. The Word of God was breathed by the Holy Spirit, and yet He used men to write it down. Or you take the ministry of the gospel, God's ordinary means of gospel ministry is through men. You think of 1 Corinthians 3 verse 5, where Paul writes and he refers to himself and then to Apollos. So he writes of Paul, Apollos. Then he says this, ministers by whom ye believed. Or if you take the governing of the church, you find from 1 Timothy 3 that the Lord has men set apart and men appointed to be the elders and the deacons of the church of Jesus Christ. Take the edifying of the body of Christ, the people of God. It's through God-sent pastors and teachers. Read Ephesians 4, 11 to 13, where it says, And he gave some apostles and some evangelists, and so on, and some pastors and teachers, which really reads, pastor-teacher. That's exactly what a minister is. He's a pastor and he's a teacher. In other words, what I'm showing you is that in so many, many realms we can see in the Scriptures the evidence of the fact that the Lord does not set aside human agency. No, no, no. The Holy Ghost is the sole agent in terms of, of the actual work that is done, whether it is giving Scripture or gospel ministry or governing the church or the edifying of the saints, but He does it through men. But let me say this. Human instrumentality would be useless without the agency, the sole agency of the Spirit. It would be useless, powerless. It would be without any benefit. That is why you need to pray for your minister every day. Bathe him and his labor for Christ 
at the throne of grace in prayer. Because no man can ever be effective or beneficial to the work of God or whatever way you want to put it unless there is upon him the Spirit of the living God. God did use Zerubbabel and Joshua as his instruments, but he used them by the agency of the Spirit, as this verse stresses, not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, the first two words there, the two operative words, might and power, they're not the same words. It's not a repetition of thought that's there, where it says, not by might nor by power, But the reference is, I'll explain the words in a moment, but the reference is to human might or human power. The danger is that though man is but an earthen vessel, that's all any one of us is. But the Bible uses that expression specifically of the gospel minister. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. He's saying, I'm only an earthen vessel. And I've got the treasure of the gospel deposited with me. But if any man thinks that since he's only an earthen vessel, he possesses what is needed to accomplish the work of God, he's very, very far wrong. Actually, do you know why God takes men or women too in their roles and uses them? It is actually to show that the excellency of the power is of God and not of men. When he takes, let me put it another way, the Lord doesn't send angels to preach the gospel, supernatural beings. He could have done that. In Bible times, angels were used to deliver the word now and then. But ordinarily, even in Bible times, it was men. And I tell you right now, there are no angels coming In our age, or the generations of the New Testament age, no, not at all. Angels only came in Bible times as part of the giving of divine revelation. But when the canon of Scripture was completed, then all of that supernatural activity ceased. And from then onwards, it is men who are sent by God to bring the word, men who are sent by God to do his work. And we could keep on saying different things there, but I want to get us home to you. And so God's work is God's work is not wrought by human strategy. Look at those words again, not by might. The word, the Hebrew word for might could also be translated army, and sometimes is translated army. And so read it that way. Not by army. If you think about an army, what do you think about? Well, a good army, with all its regiments and so on, is a body of men who are well-trained. They have uh, their ranks and all of the ways in which they operate as an army. In other words, they follow a strategic and a skillful set of training, and that's how they carry out their work. But God says here, my work is not done by human strategy. So note that. We must recognize that always because there could be, and very often there has been, dependence placed upon human strategy by the professing church. 
We can think this way. And if we just do this or do that or follow a certain course, it's bound to work. Pragmatism comes in. And men's ideas are elevated and, and thoughts fill our minds. Oh, uh, as I just said there, let's do it this way or that way. Let's try another way. Let's bring in something into the church, a worship service that will appeal to people. Uh, let, let's do these things because that's how you build the church. And God says, no, it isn't. It's not by human strategy. It's not by the wisdom of man. It's by the Holy Spirit and His infinite wisdom as well as His infinite power, etc. And as you go through the Word of God, you will find an inseparable connection between the Holy Ghost and wisdom. May I say to you, brethren and sisters, we could not ask God enough for wisdom. The first thing you need to feel is your need of wisdom. Wisdom to live the Christian life. Wisdom to serve God in His church. Wisdom to know when to speak and when to be quiet. Wisdom to know how to approach somebody or help somebody, whatever the case might be. Wisdom as to how you teach your children in the Sunday school class, how you deal with the youth of the congregation, Whatever, wisdom to go to a sick one and bring a word of encouragement. It's by wisdom. It's not by human strategy. It's by the wisdom of the Spirit of God. Now, let me show you something before I move on here. Exodus 31. Please turn to Exodus 31. And I want you to see, as I said there, the connection between the Holy Ghost and wisdom. And in Exodus 31, we have words that are striking. The first uh, part of Exodus 31, the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, now verse 2, see I have called by name Bezaliel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur. Do you know what the name Bezaliel means? Is that Exodus 31, 2? That name means standing in the shadow of God. Notice that he's the son of Uri. Uri means light. And so here's a man who, and I believe there's a message there. This man, Bezaliel, was a godly man. He stood in the shadow of God. He was a child of light. He was a son of Hur and then of the tribe of Judah. But look at verse 3. I want you to mark this verse even in your Bible. This is the first time in the Bible where you have this kind of statement. God says, I have filled them with the Spirit of God. Now, that doesn't mean there weren't other men who had the Holy Spirit in former times. We read about Joseph, who had a, definitely the Spirit in him and other men. Of course, there's no man who did a work for God prior to this who didn't have the Holy Ghost in him. But this is the first time it's actually said where God says, I have filled him with the Spirit of God. Now, think about that. This man, Bezaliel, is the man who's going to do what? He's going to build the tabernacle of Moses. And for that work, he needs what? He needs wisdom. And notice the very next 
part of the statement here. I have filled them with the Spirit of God in wisdom. Wisdom is mentioned first. It's the first reference to the infilling of the Holy Spirit in the Bible. And the very word that's stressed is this word wisdom. Bezaliel did not go about the work of erecting the tabernacle, making all the furniture. I know he had helpers, but he and his helpers didn't go about that work in human strategy. They got the pattern from God. As you find in the book of Exodus, God revealed it to Moses and Bezaliel was told, in fact, Moses was told himself, you make sure that you build the tabernacle according to what was shown to you in the mount. Don't let human strategy come in. That's what the word might, where it says not by might in our text. That's what it means, human strategy. But then, if you go back there to Zechariah, and you know the next word, not by might nor by power, the word power there, well, it says what it actually signifies. But here we're finding that God's work is not done by human strength. There is strategy and there is strength. And God says, no, neither strategy nor strength are to be brought into, of a human kind, I mean, brought into doing the work of God. Men are the instruments of God, but the strength, as well as the strategy. It must be of the Holy Spirit. And so what we're finding is that in all spiritual life and in all spiritual work, there must be a renunciation of trusting in the flesh, trusting in human power or, or strength as well as human strategy. My dear friend, the flesh always wants to intrude. It wants to get in. We have the flesh. We carry it with us. You bring the flesh with you. I mean the fleshly nature. You bring it into the house of God. When you go alone at home to pray, the flesh will go with you into the closet. It'll try to hinder you, interfere, make you think all kinds of things, etc., etc. You know what I'm talking about because you've experienced it. We need, we need the spirit strategy and we need the spirit strength. Because it's that alone that will bring about the accomplishment of the whole work of God in our lives and in our experiences. Fleshly energy cannot do a work, you see, that is spiritual. That's the point. Fleshly energy cannot do a work that is spiritual. You think, for example, of engaging the powers of darkness Take Ephesians 6, 10 to 12, and so on, down through those verses. In fact, right on down farther, it's all about the armor of God. We're in a battle, we're in a wrestling match with the forces of, de of the devil and darkness and so on. And, and yet we cannot wrestle with such forces or, or powers in the flesh. We need the power of the Holy Ghost upon us. And so it's clear, men and women, the Spirit of God is the soul, the singular agent of doing the work of God. There's a singular agency. It very quickly, goes back, go back to Zechariah 4 and notice that it's a sovereign agency. Zechariah 4 verse 7, it says, Who art thou, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel, thou shalt become a plain. 
Now that is um, metaphorical language. There wasn't a literal mountain before Zerubbabel, but there was nonetheless an obstacle, and it was comprised of those foes, the people of the land that we looked at last night, who were resisting and who were opposing what was happening and they stood in the way and they concocted their schemes and, and they tried their best to stop the work of God. And for a time, they did stop the work of God. But here's what it says. Who art thy old great mountain? The great mountain of opposition. The great mountain of discouragement. What's your mountain tonight? Is there some mountain in your life that really looms over you? in some fashion that causes you even to sink into despair. Listen to what is said here. Who art thou, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel thou shalt become a plain. In other words, here's the spirit-filled man and the spirit-filled man who's not trusting in human strategy or human strength can actually see the mountain leveled. That's what it's saying. And what a message that is. And that's wonderfully seen in the whole story of the book of Ezra in chapter 5, chapter 6. If you look at Ezra 5 and verse number 3, we read there the first two verses. And uh, we noticed these two men were uh, delivering the message of God and uh, encouraging these people. It's not actually verse 3. I just can't set my eye on it here. Oh, no, it's verse number 5. Notice that statement in verse 5 of Ezra 5. But the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews that they could not cause them to cease. Do you notice that? All God had to do was look at the enemies of his people. And they stopped. They couldn't cause the work to cease. Are you not reminded here in that reference of something that happened at the Exodus? Do you remember when Moses took the Israelites down into the bed of the Red Sea and they're going through on dry ground, but the Egyptians came after them? They also went down into the bed the dry river, the dry seabed, and began to go after the Israelites to overthrow them. You know what you're told in Exodus 14? God looked through the cloud, and with one look he removed the chariot wheels, and they were bogged down in the bed of the sea, and then the waters came crashing over them. And when the morning came, they were all dead on the seashore. All God had to do was look. Now, God doesn't have an eye. Uh, it's an, what you call an anthropomorphism. It's using something that we are used to. You've got your eyes, you see, you look, and so on. And so the Bible uses all those different terms. The hands of God, the eyes of God, the arm of God, the feet of God, and so on. The mouth of God. To, to help us to understand something of the wonderful God we serve. And He, therefore, by His Spirit, can cause men to be stopped on their tracks and mountains to be leveled to a plain through the sovereign agency of the Holy Spirit. 
Look again in Zechariah 4 at verse number 10. And notice the question at the start of that verse. For who hath despised the day of small things? And you see what that means as in this context. They were comparing the new temple, the second temple that they were now building, with Solomon's temple. And with regard to dimensions and with regard to all the aesthetics and the ornateness of Solomon's temple, the second temple didn't look like very much really. And so there were some in Israel who were despising the day of small things. And so the Lord goes on to say this, For they shall rejoice and shall see the plummet, verse 10, in the hand of Zerubbabel. With those seven, they are the eyes of the Lord which run to and fro through the whole earth. Notice that, the seven eyes of the Lord running to and fro through the whole earth. I'm talking here about the Lord uh, looking. And as you saw in Ezra chapter 5, 3, uh, the Lord, he, he looked at them as I fell on them and, they, and he caused them to stop. And now we have this reference to what's called here the seven eyes of the Lord that run to and, thro- to and fro through the whole earth. What is that? Well, do you know what the, one of the first fundamentals of interpreting the Bible is? You compare Scripture with Scripture. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, you read again about the seven eyes that Christ sends forth into all the earth. And they are specifically referred to as the seven spirits of God. Now, why that language? Well, for one thing, the book of Revelation is a book of symbolism to a great degree. And numbers. It doesn't mean that there are seven spirits. And I say that reverently. But what it means is the one spirit is perfect. Seven is the number of perfection. The perfect spirit. And so the seven eyes of the Lord uh, refer to, the language refers to the perfect spirit who in a sovereign providence is sent forth into all the earth to do the work sovereignly and therefore irresistibly, the work that God has purposed to be done. And let me tell you, my dear friend, God's work will not fail. Oh, I know from the human perspective, when we look at God's work, we see the bleak side. We see sometimes the dark, shady side of the whole thing. But you remember that God is still building and working in this world and carrying out what He has purposed to do, and nothing can stop it because it's being executed by the blessed sovereign Spirit in His providential agency. He will bring to pass everything that God has decreed to come to pass. In Ezra 6, if you want to turn quickly there, and uh, please forgive me for making you flip to and fro, but uh, anyhow, that's what we need to do. Look at Ezra chapter 6, and let me just analyze it for you. The first five verses of this chapter record the discovery of Cyrus's original decree. Remember in chapter 1, Cyrus gave a decree, build the temple in Jerusalem. And so it's discovered, as you read in the first five verses here of chapter 6, then from verse 6 to verse 12, you've got Darius's new decree. That's in chapter 6 of Ezra. From verse 6 through to verse 12, there's another decree issued by this man, Darius, who 
uh, ruled alongside Cyrus, really. And you know, it's remarkable, this new decree. For example, if you look at verse 7 of Ezra 6, it says there, let this, sorry, let the work of this house of God alone. That was said to the enemies, the people in the land. Get your hands off God's work. Oh, I tell you, my friend, that was something. Wouldn't it have been lovely to hear that coming from Westminster? Get your hands off God's work. Get your hands off Christ's church. We long for such things. So there was protection. And also, if you look at that same verse, there's also permission. The end of the verse, let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews build this house of God in his place. He decreed, he decreed uh, protection. He decreed permission. Go a little farther down, and you'll find in verses 8 and 9, he said this, Moreover, I make a decree what ye shall do to the elders of these Jews for the building of this house of God, that of the king's goods. Oh, it comes right out of the king's pocket, of the king's goods, even of the tribute beyond the river. Forthwith expenses be given unto these men, that they be not hindered. And that which they have need of, young bullocks, rams, lambs, for the burnt offerings of the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, and oil, according to the appointment of the priests which are at Jerusalem, let it be given them day by day without fail. Now let me say something to you now. This was all granted by a man who was a pagan. Can you imagine that? Well, here it is. How is it happening? The sovereign spirit is in control. And he moves the heart of this king. There's Cyrus who gave the initial decree, chapter 1. Now there's Darius who comes as well, and he gives his decree. And I tell you, what a mighty decree it is. And I, I noticed verse 10 here. It's a wonderful verse. Notice this in, in Ezra 6. Now they may offer sacrifices of sweet savors unto the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and of his sons. Cyrus is saying that. You know, it may be Cyrus got saved. Verse 10 would almost lead you we can't be um, dogmatic on this, but it almost leads you to believe that this man did come to know the Lord because he wants all this work to go on so that he will benefit and benefit spiritually. He's not looking for money. He's not looking for a payback. He says that they might pray for the life of the king and his sons. You know what that means? Darius saw that these people of Israel had a God who answered prayer. And he wants prayer for himself and for his situation. And so, if you look at that verse 10 again, it's striking because it contains such clear gospel terms. It says that they may offer sacrifices of sweet savors unto the God of heaven. What did he know? God must be appeased. The sweet savor the sweet savor of a sacrifice. 
There's Christ again. There's the gospel again. What is it that appeases God in his righteous justice and wrath? It's the sweet savor of the precious blood and the finished work of our Lord Jesus. I can't go on here with this, but you can see that the Spirit is not only singular in his agency, but he's sovereign in his agency. And then in closing, it is a successful agency. Turn back, please, to Zechariah 4. And look at verse 8 and verse 9. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also finish it, and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts has sent me unto you. In many ways, that was a personal word to Zechariah. God's telling Zechariah, Zechariah, Zerubbabel's hands laid the foundation. His hands will finish the house. And when you see it finished, you will know that the Lord of hosts is at work and has sent me, that is the angel who speaks here to, or the word of the Lord that's been spoken to, Zechariah, it's all come from God. But just look at the words there. Here is the successful agency. Everything took place by the agency of the Spirit to the point where the work was finished. Now on that verse, before I leave it and close this meeting, and I always want to do this, you have one of the most wonderful statements in the book of Zechariah. You know, the book of Zechariah is a very Christ-centered little book. But you have one of the most wonderful statements in this verse that sums up the work of our Savior. It says, His hands have laid the foundation. His hands shall finish it. What is that? That is telling us that Zerubbabel was the author and the finisher of what happened here. He laid the foundation. He then finished the work. And in that we have a view of Jesus Christ. Isn't he called the author and the finisher of our faith? That's Hebrews 12 verse 2. Actually in that verse where it says the author and finisher of the faith it is the faith. It's the whole gospel. It's not, it's not talking about our subjective act of believing. The verse is talking about the objective faith in the sense of what we actually believe in order to be saved. And what is that? The finished work. That the Lord Jesus has laid the foundation and the Lord Jesus finished the work. And therefore, we rest on that work. It's a perfect work. It's a finished work. It can't be added to. It can't be taken away from. It's a finished work. And as we rest on that, we are saved. And that's how the church of God is built. By someone who's the author and the finisher. And it says there, in that same verse, uh, verse number seven rather, the previous verse, toward the end of that verse, he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying grace, grace unto it. And in that verse you have a glimpse of the, the second coming of our Lord, who's the author and the finisher, and who one day will come and he will, he will put the headstone on the whole thing. He will come in all his glory. He'll come with a shout, He'll come to bring 
final redemption to his people, resurrecting them from their graves, changing the living saints, gathering the whole body of believers together, and it will all be done within the context of grace. It says here, shoutings, crying, grace, grace unto it. Brothers and sisters, the work of the Spirit is successful. It's what we need. It's what you need personally, the agency of the Holy Spirit. Paul says to the Galatian Christians, walk in the Spirit. That actually reads, walk in line. Walk in line with the Spirit. It's in Galatians 5 you find that. He writes there about being led by the Spirit. He writes in Ephesians about being filled with the Spirit. And on and on he goes, the Apostle Paul. The great uh, theology of the Holy Ghost is, is in his writings from uh, right through from, from Romans and onwards. Oh, my dear friend, we need to study this. We need the Spirit of God. We need to fill our hearts, fill our meetings. Pray before you come to church, Lord, may the Holy Ghost come down today. Pray before you go out to witness, Lord, fill me with your Spirit. Help me to walk in line with the Spirit. Help me to be in line with my brethren and sisters. Help me to promote the unity of the Spirit. This is all essential because the Spirit is the agent. We dare not grieve the Spirit or we deprive ourselves of all that we need to do the work of God. And I pray for you that the Lord will exercise your hearts, that you'll be found before the Lord more and more and more, crying for the agency of the Spirit of God, that singular, sovereign, successful agency of the Spirit of God. We'll bow together in prayer as we come to a close and we trust the Lord will bless the Word to you and our studies on it and encourage your hearts. And may He move upon every one of us in this gathering tonight, even among those online. And may a work be done for God's glory. Father in heaven, let us know our hearts, how weak and frail we are. And I pray, Lord, that you will just strengthen us. And that Thou wilt come and, and give to us that blessed sovereign agency in every aspect of the work of God. Lord, we pray that we will know uh, that singular power among us, that operation of the Holy Ghost in prayer meetings and church worship services, children's meetings, and so on. Oh, Lord, visit us. Visit this congregation. Visit the church of God farther afield. Visit the saints in these dark, wicked days. Restrain evil men. O Lord, stop them in their tracks and show thyself to be God for thy glory and for thine own everlasting praise. Save souls. Gather in the lost. Restore the backslidden. Do the work that needs to be done we pray all of this in Jesus' name. With thanksgiving, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God 
and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all thy people, both this night and then forevermore.